If you're looking for inspiration and challenge in the world of early years and key stage one education, then you've just found it. Welcome to the Early Excellence Podcast. The Early Excellence Podcasts are the perfect place to start if you're looking for inspiration. So have a listen to this, our interview with the wonderful Alison Clark, as we explore slow pedagogy and deeper learning. This week, we're joined by Alison Clark. Alison is Professor of Early Childhood Education at the University of Southeastern Norway and also Honorary Senior Research Fellow at the Institute of Education, which is at University College London. As part of our conversation, we discuss Alison's new book, which is called Slow Knowledge and the Unhurried Child. So here you go. Here's my Early Excellence podcast chat with Alison Clark. I'm delighted to be joined today by Alison Clark. Alison, hello, how are you? I'm very well, thank you, Andy. A pleasure to be here. And good to see you. Whereabouts in the world are you, Alison? So I'm in Orkney, um, so off the uh, northeast coast of Scotland. And um, the uh, weather is still struggling to be spring-like here. Mm. <laughs> well, hopefully it will warm up fairly soon. Hopefully a beautiful part of the world up there really beautiful part of the world and um, we're, we're going to be talking of course about your your new book or relatively new but when exactly did it come out so it came out it came out in um the beginning of january this this year so fairly new still yeah yeah relatively new okay very good well um yeah it's uh, it's a fantastic book. we're going to be talking all about it of course as part of the discussion uh, and about the study that led led towards it as well, which was really interesting. Um, just before we get on to that, would you mind um, for mind just giving us a bit of an introduction? Would that be okay? Just for people who are not familiar with your work, would you mind just giving us a bit of an introduction? Yeah. So in terms of my sort of teaching career, I began as a, a primary teacher. I trained in Bristol in the 1980s um, before national curriculum. I'm very old. And, um, and then... Um, but began work on research, firstly with um, uh, children living in um, temporary accommodation in Bristol and their access to schooling. So there's been a sort of social justice thread running through my work. And um, one of my more my, my first research projects after that one was um, working with Professor Peter Moss at the Institute of Education. And this was a project around listening to young children, which led to the mosaic approach. Um, which has been sort of picked up and developed by many people since, to listen to the views and experiences of children under five. And my sort of sort of lecturing career has taken me to several different universities, including Roehampton University, working on early childhood courses there, and then at the Open University, um, working on courses on research with children and young people and early childhood. Um, and I'm now based part time in Norway as a professor of early childhood education. That's a brief run through what I've been up to. No, no it sounds fascinating now, and, and I love what you're saying that actually the there is a thread there throughout your work 
and and you can see that there is a link there between some of the work that you were just saying about your kind of your early career and and actually the work you know particularly the the study and and the book that we're going to be talking about there's a real link there i think which is great yeah i think that one of the threads for me is um this desire for to listen to to children and and to um practitioners' perspectives and to really hear about what it what it's like, the sort of day-to-day, and that's kind of run through my work, really. Yeah. Yes, yeah. No, fantastic. Super. Okay, so um, we're going to be talking all about the book. Um, the title of the book, first of all, I think really struck a chord with me and I think really will for many people. Um, the title of your book is Slow Knowledge and the Unhurried Child. And I think when I when I work with, when I meet early years teachers and practitioners, I think what I'm always aware of is that actually people are often battling against time a little bit. That the, that the day itself is almost like a battleground. That actually we are often, I think, trying to just get through things, trying to get to the end of the day, trying to tick things off. And sometimes when I meet people at the end of a day, you know, just before I deliver some training, I, I will say to them, you know, you know, how's your day been? And I think what their answer is will often relate to whether they've managed to get things done in the day. You know, whether, whether actually we've been successful in ticking off all of the different things we got, we were aiming to get done. And it always, it's always interesting to me in that it's not necessarily always about whether you get it done or it's more about the quality of what we did. And so when I saw your book, it really struck a chord because, because I think actually it is really important that I think we have that conversation and that conversation is re- very much brought to the fore that actually it's not just about the amount that we cover. It's not just about the amount of content that we cover, but about the quality of what we provide. And, I, and so straight away, when I saw your book, I thought, gosh, that is so important that that conversation is something that we have, really. So, so yeah, it's something that, that, that jumped out at me, really, in terms of your book. And, and so I then looked into it, and, and I looked into how the book itself came about. Um, could, you, could you describe to us how the book came about? Because, of course, it's not just, a, in, a, in a sense, it's not just the book, is it? The book itself is a culmination of a study where you've been working with lots and lots of different people over, over a period of time. Could you describe that process for us? Yes. Yeah, so, so I think that so the process has been, it's been brewing for quite a long time. Um, this is a sort of slow burn project. I think when you listen to researchers talk, sometimes there are sort of ideas are at the back of your mind and they keep on cropping up. And I think this one has been brewing for a long time. Um, it's partly, I think, came about because of the opportunities I've had to move between um, Norway and uh, England and Scotland. And also I'm part of um, the European Early Childhood Education Research Association the, the conference network that meets once a year um, and brings together um, practitioners, researchers in early childhood across the world, really, not just in Europe. And I think it's part of those discussions that has sort of highlighted for me differences in the relationship with time. And I think 
I think bringing that conversation to the fore, as you say, is so important because um, the relationship with time, with the clock, with the timetable, so affects the day to day. But I think it's not something that there's normally been room to talk about. It's just a given. It's just been there from our childhoods and it's kind of continued. Um, and so those kind of seeds have been in the project for the project have been there for a long time. And then when it came to, I put in the application to the Froebel Trust for the project. And I knew I wanted it to be, if possible, a two-year project. So there was a bit of time to breathe in, in the project, which I know is a huge privilege. But I wanted to talk to people who I thought were already um, taking a slower, more measured, more, more a sort of tuned-in approach to early childhood education in different countries. Um, and through teacher education, um, training of early childhood teachers, but also working in um, early childhood settings. Um, and so the in-depth interviews with these 20 individuals across 11 countries are at the heart of the study. And then I've tried to really give those voices a lot of um, attention within the book. Um, yes, yeah, and it, and it's very fitting, I think, isn't it, that actually your your the process of and carrying out the study took two years, in that you didn't want to rush. You know, it is fitting. You you wouldn't rush through a study like that. You know, you would want to actually build the relationships with people. I would imagine, and and kind of foster that trust and do all of those sorts of things, which actually fits with the, the pedagogy that that actually we're talking about in terms of the classroom. I think. Yes, and of course it was it was had to um, adjust itself the study itself because of the pandemic. So I started in January, twenty twenty. It's funny how the years kind of merge. <laughs> when was it? Yeah, twenty twenty. So yeah, so March twenty twenty when I was about to be going to visit people and do the interviews, um, um, we were in lockdown. Um, and so then the project needed to change, really. Uh, it meant that I think we all became so much more aware, perhaps, of time during the pandemic as well, um, that, you know, sometimes things absolutely froze and stood still and other times had to work really hard to get ideas and to get projects still still to continue. Um, other people having to make very quick changes to their practice and how they could provide for children and families. So, so I think how we work with time changed during the pandemic. Um, so doing a study on time through those years was, was kind of quite strange, but I think added added to it, added a, a more depth to it, perhaps. Um, now, actually, I was going to ask you as, as a kind of a follow-up question, did you feel that with, with the pandemic and lockdowns as a backdrop to the study, did you feel that actually that influenced the study in terms of perhaps your thinking at all in a positive way? I'm just I'm just thinking that actually, you know, in that time, it was such a different time that actually, you know, we did have probably more time generally as a society to stop what we were doing and we were forced to slow down, weren't we? We were forced to not be traveling anywhere else. Or, you know, we, we, we kind of had time to stop and perhaps to be more reflective. And it strikes me that that's quite an interesting time to be to be then carrying out a study on our relationship with time to a certain extent. Well, I, I think it did provide an opportunity for a rethink, 
potentially in education as a whole, not just in early childhood. And I think it was that moment when we heard that the examination system in England was going to be were going to be stopped and that um, young people would be assessed by their teachers. And it was like, oh, okay, so this whole education system that we kind of train children for right from early days is suddenly having this major shift. And, you know, I think that should, it felt like this is a moment to think about what we're doing, uh, about our whole systems, how we grade children, how we we, we continually test them. And um, it is a political question as well. It's a political question about how our education systems work. And I think, you know, definitely brought to the fore these questions of why why are we working like this what pressures are there on us and how do they how have those taken us away from in early childhood perhaps with more of the really established early childhood principles that go back many many decades yes yeah no really interesting stuff um yeah i think that your work generally i mean both in terms of the study itself and of course following through into into the book too. Um, I think it raises lots of important questions. Um, there have been lots of discussions, for example, over the last few years, I think, around, um, around the curriculum, around curriculum content, around progression of curriculum content, of course, particularly um, within across the primary range. Um, and then, of course, impacting on early years practice, we've had things like the introduction of, of different schemes, so phonics schemes, for example, or math schemes. And time as part of that, I think, well, time is certainly impacted by all of that, I think. Um, and I was going to ask you, do you, in terms of that, that relationship with time in terms of teaching, do you feel that there is an association between, between time and, and pace particularly and and quality learning that that actually I think I think your work I think is a real breath of fresh air in that actually what you're saying is slowing down could be more effective okay whereas actually certainly other approaches point to if it's fast if it's pacey if it's quick then actually that's the best way to teach young children do you see what I mean and do you feel that we have an association with with speed being equals effective well, I think there has been an increase in recent years around around sort of interventions and sort of perhaps quick quick fixes and also very prescribed um, uh, interventions. And I think to me, what it's distracting from, particularly in early childhood education, is the opportunities for children to play. And you know, I think if we think about some of the sort of core features of early childhood education and care, we have play, which is very hard to measure. Um, it's difficult to see fixed outcomes of. Um, and it's difficult to put the clock on it, you know, to say, right, OK, well, we'll have three minutes play here and then we're on to something else. And, and when children are really engaged in their own ideas and explorations, then um, that that's difficult to um, uh, contain like that. So we have play as central. We have care, which is another another element of early childhood education and care. There in the name that again so fundamental to to working with young children and 
difficult to test, difficult to measure, but so hugely important. And then maybe a sense of wonder. And I think perhaps we've beginning to lose that in terms of we've got to get through this children need to learn this we we need to um do this tick box we need to send this uh, video home so you know a, a lot of things i think of pulling us away from those core features of quality early childhood education and care and i think it is yes it is bound up not only but i think it is bound up with the with thinking about how we relate to time as well mm. Yes, absolutely. I, I, mean, I also it crossed my mind also that there's probably a link here with with stress in that I think probably quite naturally when we are, and I'm thinking probably about and more about the adults in the classroom, really, that prob- probably when we are more stressed, we, we are less likely to relax, we're less likely to slow down much more likely that we're going to speed up and want to try and get things done in a more hurried way. And that from the outset, we don't see that as being a negative thing. We see that as, well, if I'm stressed, I'm, I'm, I'm really on my game and I'm getting things done and I'm getting, things, I'm getting through things. And that many people wouldn't see that as having a direct impact on the children. Whereas actually the children potentially are missing out in terms of quality time if we do that. And I think I don't think that's something that, again, I don't think we talk enough about, that actually stress actually shows itself in different ways in our behaviour, really. And certainly that speeding up, I think, is part of it. Yeah, I think one of the difficulties if you're feeling stressed is to be in the moment and kind of being in the moment with children is that is at the heart, I think, of a, of, a, of a slow pedagogy. I mean, when I was talking to my participants, one of the things that kept on cropping up was with um, educators and researchers saying, well, I think it, 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 it's about having permission to be in the moment with children. And sometimes that permission might be giving yourself permission to do that. It might be a worry that other colleagues might think, oh, actually, you're not looking very busy. What are you up to? So there's a kind of giving yourself permission, being in a work culture where there is permission to do that. Um, and and that can also come from outside fear fear of um, inspection, fear, fear, fear of evaluation. So I think the, the, those factors can kind of pull you away I think from this being able to be to be fully immersed fully involved in what's happening now in that moment not always thinking about the next thing I think it's very it's a very it's very skillful a professional um, attitude really to be able to be able to tune in like that it's not taking the easy path kind of thing yes absolutely absolutely um what i was watching some of the different video clips um just in the lead up to us talking um just over the last few days and um and also reading some of the different things that were that were online as well and i was there was one of the things where i'd seen you talking at, at I think it was a Froebel event, and um, you shared a quote which I thought was really interesting, and it was from uh, from it was from a study or from from uh, from a book, and uh, uh, here we are from Morris Holt in two thousand and two, and Morris Holt uh, linked uh, was talking about um, basically fast food 
So he's talking about the kind of hamburger approach to education and that there's a similarity there in terms of food and education, that if we think about fast food, it being very convenient, very quick, um, that we can just get, get that food or get that learning as and when we need it kind of thing, but that actually there's also a relationship there in terms of health and that fast food, of course, isn't healthy and in the same way fast learning isn't healthy. And I, I thought that was great. I'd never seen that before. I thought that was quite an interesting way of linking it together, that actually there is a sort of, there's a health relationship here, isn't there? It's not just about effective learning. There's a health side to it too. Yes, I think that's true, Andy. So so Maurice Hawke was talking around, so 21 years ago, sort of saying, I think we need a slow education movement. So the slow food movement that he was talking about there uh, it started in Italy um, and was around uh, trying to make explicit our relationship with food and to think, well, is is there another way than this very fast, um, uh, uniform sort of uh, uh, eating the same thing uh, and, and moving away from uh, and in that um, – thinking about the relationship between the sort of social side that comes with eating and sharing. And obviously, we're talking about this now in the middle of great um, childhood poverty and, and food scarcity. So, you know, that we need to think about the, about the context now as well. But so the so sl- slow, slow food movement started and then went into different areas. And was, there was a bit of a kind of rumble within education, but not really. Um, but I think what's interesting is maybe a time to sort of revisit that post-pandemic and think, well, actually, um, is there something here about re-evaluating um, our relationship with speed? So there was a, a book that was written, uh, 2004 it came out in, in terms of In Praise of Slow. And it was a, by a journalist called Carl Honoré. And one of his catalysts for writing the book Um, was about the relationship with his two-year-old son. And um, his two-year-old son really liked long bedtime stories. And he was a busy dad and he was like kind of trying to do the quick quick story and dash out the room. And his his son, you know, would sort of shout down down the hall, you're going too fast. And it was one of those kind of, oh, hang on a minute, what am I doing moments that I think we all have as... (laughs) in our different roles. Um, and that led him to write the book. And so he looks at one of the things he does look at is education. Um, but I thought that's interesting to have a, a sort of the relationship between parents and children as also part of this conversation. What do we have time for and what can we make time for? Um, 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 and what does, what does slow benefit? Because I think in all this, it's not wanting just a slowing down for itself, but it's actually saying, um, what does a slower pace enable? And for me, that's partly around who does it enable as well. There may well be children um, in our classrooms who who actually would benefit from a different pace um, or us being more aware of their own rhythm. And their own rhythm can be fast as well as slow. So um, 
you know, there is part of this. This isn't just around, around you know, sort of f- slowing down to a sort of slow-mo mode. It's actually about being finding the right time, the right time for different children, the right time for different activities. Yes, it's probably more about awareness rather than slow necessarily, I guess, isn't it? Mm. No, interesting. Well, the, one of the words that's come up in all this, we've uh, in the conversations, in the interviews, and then in my sort of a couple of projects that I've been working on since, um, practitioners saying to me, well, okay, this is about slow, but I think I prefer the word deep is what they're saying to me, that, you know, it's actually around um, that ability to go a bit deeper with children, to stay with ideas, and then to see where that develops. So it's kind of slow and deep. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I understand then that you've been working as part of that project, as part of the study, the two-year study, um, with a, a number of different practitioners um, in different parts of the world. But I also I, I noticed that some of the, the teachers and practitioners that you'd worked with were in Falkirk in Scotland. And it really, that again drew me in because when I watched the video clips um, online of part of the study and the practitioners who'd worked in Falkirk, they were in a part of the world that was familiar to me. They were at the, um, oh, what is it? I think, is it called the, is it the Falkirk Wheel um, near the Kelpies? Is that right? Which is a fantastic thing. And the, um, have you ever been to the, yeah, the Falkirk Wheel? This incredible um, thing with the with barges and riverboats where, you, where they use water to offset the weight of the boat so that it goes up a level. It's the most incredible, simple and yet incredible um, structure. Yes. So I was working, so this was a, a sort of follow-on project that was led by... Um, Donna Green, who's the lead Falkirk pedagogue in in, um, in in that area. And Donna had been studying for a master's at University of Edinburgh, um, and she decided to look into slow pedagogy. She was part of my focus group because in my study, um, I wanted to talk with a group of early childhood practitioners and students around the initial findings. And Donna was one of those. Then she did her own project and um, and then applied for a practitioner grant because the Froebel Trust um, have small practitioner grants um, that uh, it, uh, open for application at different times of year. And um, Donna's project was to look at the connection between slow pedagogies and Frobelian principles. So looking at the principles of Frederick Froebel, um, who is is kind of recognised as having set up the first kindergarten. Um, and his principles are still sort of con- contemporary principles for early childhood um, education and development. So um, thinking about childhood being um, important in its own right, not just a preparation for um, being older, um, the emphasis on the outdoors and on first-hand experience, for example. So Donna's project, we were working with three um, early childhood um, uh, settings, uh, Glen Devon, Lambert and Bontaskin. And the educators there wanted to think, well, okay, they wanted to work with these ideas and they wanted to think about, well, what would make it really relevant for their settings? 
And two of the settings, Glendevin and Lambert, chose to think about meal times. And Bantaskin thought about the relationship with nature. And it's a, it was a, such a joy to work with them because they really looked in depth at their own practice. They involved colleagues in their settings. They worked with children and parents. Um, and so the meal times one was to look at how lunch times in the settings could be more child focused. Um, and um, this was connected with another um, uh, Fulker uh, study that is in other parts of Scotland now called Marvellous Meal Times. And it's around how um, yeah, children can be given more agency during, during meal times, how it become more of a social time, encouraging talk and communication. Um, and so that was the the ideas of bringing the sort of thinking about a less hurried approach into thinking about meal times, and then with Bantaskin, one of the things they did was to expand the time that they spent outdoors with the children, and to look at that and being an, in a more open way. So to to prepare for the trips out, for example, to the full cut wheel, but to also take it at a slower pace and to be able then within that slower pace to listen more to children, to follow their ideas and to support their interests. So that was the sort of core of the project. Um, yeah, no, it's really interesting. I, I did wonder as well, you know, the, as you say, one of the one of the settings they focused on being outdoors and that the the use of time around out being outdoors, and it it strikes me that quite often when people are outdoors, that that time is a, it becomes a different thing. That um, you know sometimes when I work with with teachers and practitioners, say who who have a, who have access to a forest school site, that they go off 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 the school premises into a forest school site. One of the things that often they say is that we completely lost track of time. The time just ran away with us or, you know, the children became so engrossed and we just lost track of time. And I, w- I did wonder when, when I was watching the clip of, of the setting that were doing a lot of their work outdoors, whether there was that link between being off site, being away from your school premises, being away from the, the ringing of the bell or the ti- or the, or the the clock on the wall or whether actually there's an element of that linking to actually the, what we're talking about here, the, you know, the, the use of time and slowing down. Was that something that you found? Yes, definitely. So, and I think it was one of the original sort of thoughts when I was working more with Norway, Norwegian colleagues was to think, well, in a more relaxed sort of outdoor uh, way, spending more time outdoors, which is such a core part of their practice. Um, what would happen if you brought that kind of relationship and pace indoors, if you see what I mean? So several of my participants said, actually, we feel very different outdoors, just as you're saying, um, that losing track of time, but also this permission to be more in the moment outdoors and that you don't have the, you don't have the, the same co- constraints of the bell, etc. So there seems to be something particular when you come out of the school, early childhood environment, that actually you can um, work in a different way, relax maybe, in a, uh, work in, with children in a different way. And at the moment, I've just started a new project in Orkney with three settings. And one of the uh, 
managers have said to me, actually, I think our experts here, some of them are the are the, are the forest practitioners who, who are used to working outdoors in such a natural way, and that maybe they have more things to tell us about how we can be working indoors. Yeah, there's a definite link there, I think, isn't there? Yeah. Okay. And and also interesting as well that that the that one of the groups chose mealtimes and food as as another area to really focus in on. In that again I think there's 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 a link there too. And that if you think about relationships and our relationship with food and our relationship with other people food is often quite central to, to, to that forming a relationship. You know, things like family groupings, for example, you know, we, we will sit and we will have a meal together. We, and we will celebrate together, you know, at birthdays or at Christmas or, or at different celebrations. Food is often central to that. And it's also central to feeling kind of relaxed and enjoying kind of being in somebody else's company. You know, that kind of, that sort of, element to it it gives us a purpose to being together and 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 giving time to one another i think and so again it, it made me think that actually that's a that's very well chosen you know the the the, the practitioners who chose the meal times i think that's a really interesting area to really focus in on yes yes andy thinking about meal times um it came out in conversations with my participants as well. So um, Deb Harcourt um, is an early childhood consultant in Australia and she was looking at the, the practice in the settings that um, that she visited and even though these children were in for long daycare, so many, many hours across the day, mealtimes have become very, very rushed. They've become sort of, let's just let's just get the food into children and then move on to the next thing. So they were a, there were a point in time Let's get the job done, move on. And she called it the rush hour. And so some of her work was to kind of work with practitioners around, okay, let's look at what's happening here and let's try and see how the children can be more involved and how it can become um, part of a part of a learning experience, learning social relationships, make it part of the day, give it more status really. And, and that then became the... Um, starting point for other changes in the day to look at how um, how a slower slower rhythm and then a looking at what was important um, could, could actually help. So on the cover of the book, I chose the cover to have ripples like a stone going into a pond and ripples coming out because people have said to me, well, okay, yeah, we've started with lunchtime, so actually it then has have a ripple effect on other areas because we're then thinking about the way we work at other times of the day. Yes. That's really interesting, I think, yes, the ripple effect of it making you think, well, actually, I wonder what would happen then if we didn't just slow down meal times, but we slowed down other things, that we've, if we reflected in the same amount of depth on other things. Yeah, very interesting. Um, I was also going to ask you about, um, in terms of, in terms of the, the study itself, what you saw in terms of the impact on the children. Because, of course, that's the, I suppose, the big question, isn't it, is, is that actually what impact does it have? You know, so if we're slowing things down, if we're using time perhaps differently, if we're reflecting on our practice, what did you, what did your note, what did you notice or what did the teachers or practitioners notice um, about the children 
But also I wonder what did they notice about themselves? Because I think that's an interesting thing also. Um, that actually we all know what that's like to feel the day running away with us a little bit in terms of time. But what did they notice about themselves, I wonder, in terms of slowing it down? Well, I, I think maybe part of this comes back to this idea of slow not being the end point in itself, but uh, in terms of what, what can slow enable. So, um, for example, in the focus group, um, one of the early charter students um, and practitioners, she was talking about... Um, being outside with children and um, a moment where another colleague said, oh, it's snack time now, in you come. And she kind of paused and realised the children were in the middle of quite a kind of an elaborate conversation about this ball that had gone missing. And so she said to her colleague, well, can you just wait? Because actually we're going to finish doing this first. And so the children then had the opportunity to problem solve how they were going to find this ball and get this ball back. And they learned so much more from being able to have that hands-on involvement and to be, you know, to to follow through what they were doing, um, rather than if um, the um, practitioner just said, "Oh, we have to leave this now. Um, I'll get the ball. In you go." So it's that's just a a very small example, but saying, "Okay, if this this less hurried approach." can enable children to have more agency, to be more directly involved, to follow through their ideas, to have that satisfaction of having done things for themselves. I mean, I remember with my own children who are now in their 30s, and one of them would say, I do it myself. And that was always the kind of, you know, that determination to be able to do. And sometimes as a parent, you just, you know, you, you just it's just awful trying to um, – it's just much quicker to say, uh, it's okay, I'm going to do this. We need we need to get somewhere where we need to do this. So I think more opportunities for children to do it themselves. Um, and then I think to – it can be the opportunity to enrich the curriculum as well. For example, to give children the opportunity to explore with more, more materials, for example, that might take longer, be messier, be less um, – less, um, uh, d- defined goal, more open-ended, but actually the children may well learn far more through that process. Um, yes. Yeah. It, it made me think that it's um, that your work is different to what a, what to a lot of the things that are out there at the moment that we're that we're hearing, particularly from from the Department for Education, and again, as I mentioned earlier, through different schemes and so on. Where, where actually there's a lot of talk about content and not as much talk about the quality of the experience or the quality of, 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 of learning. You know, there's characteristics of effective learning that, of course, really need to be there and need to be nurtured and supported over time. There's a, there's a big question mark around some of these approaches around actually what's, whether, whether actually we're building effective learners through it. That you could, you know, that you could talk about the content and you can talk about curriculum content, but actually, are we building effective learners through doing it? And and I think I, I think having the opportunity to stand back, as I think your work prompts people to do, to stand back from their practice and to reflect on it, I th- I think really really does lead us into thinking. Well, actually, how are children developing that sense of autonomy? How are children developing that? 
that confidence to have a go at things. How are they um, making links, making connections? Um, you know, how are they developing that the, that resilience to try things and to problem solve? And that doesn't just happen in short bursts of time. It doesn't just happen in a directed context. It happens when children have time to properly explore within a rich learning environment where they're finding things that interest them and fascinate them. And then they want to continue at it and keep going back to it. And and I, I think there's such a lot within early years education that doesn't fit with that at the moment, really. Yeah, I think one one word that springs to mind is is to think about the importance of, of process over product. And I think maybe we've become too sort of product driven in terms of fixed outcomes. Um, I think it really worries me when I hear talk of um, certain academies giving scripts for teachers to teach to. And um, I'm not talking here about early childhood education, but I think that's such a worrying direction because um, in the end, I think that points towards a very shallow understanding of education because it's all around a fixed, defined result that we can measure easily. And I think the, the children, young children now are going to need very different skills to equip them for uncertain times. And they're going to need to problem solve. They need to be uh, able to be um, to, to, to think through issues. They're needing to deal with uncertainty, uh, to look after the planet. There are lots of things that they will need to uh, equip them for their future lives. And I think our education needs to match up to that. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, the um, It was great, actually, over the weekend, just this, we've just had, of course, we're talking just after one of the um, long weekends in May, of course, aren't we? And um, over the weekend, I noticed on social media, there were at least two, two or three, possibly more, I noticed a, a few people who, who had read the book and, and were sharing posts about your book. Um, and there was a common thread through each of them where it was basically they were sort of saying how much they'd enjoyed the book, but also they were sort of saying how it felt like they were being given sort of justification, some justification through reading your work, which I thought was great, that actually there were certain things that they'd, that they'd included in their practice or in their ethos that they always in their heart of hearts knew to be right, perhaps, but needed that 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 backup, if you like, and that they were basically saying that your your work was providing that backup, which I thought was great. Did you see Did you see those posts? Yeah, it it was really lovely, Andy, and, and I think one word that came it was uh, um, educators saying, "I feel more confident, confident in their own values, really, and saying actually this is giving me the confidence to stand up for what I know makes sense," and. Um, and that's that's sort of brilliant um, because this is not about new ideas. It's around sort of helping, I think, uh, helping us kind of rethink where we've got to in early childhood education and of being and of reclaiming what what we know are the sort of underlying principles that make sense for for young children and and for everyone working with young children. So yeah, I use the word reclaiming a lot, and I think if. Um, educators are feeling more 
can feel more confident in sticking up for what they believe, then that's great. So there is a sort of element of resistance in this. It's around saying, hang on a minute, actually, we know that there is a, you know, the, the emphasis on play, for example, on on um, on process. These, these things are so important in early childhood education. So let's, you know, a bit of bravery, I think, here. Um, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, um, Alison, it's been fantastic to talk to you. I've really, really enjoyed having our conversation. Really, really interesting to chat through um, the study and, and your book with you. Um, Alison's book, Slow Knowledge and the Unhurried Child, um, is published by Routledge. It's available now and it is highly recommended. Um, I've got my copy here. It is a great book, really interesting book. And as we were just saying, I think will really strike a chord with many people, particularly if you're feeling that you're going from one thing to another to another across the day within an earlier setting, if you're teaching within an earlier setting, that actually time to stop time to reflect time to really think about slow pedagogies and to reflect on our practice i think is crucial and so i think this is a very much a timely book really you know it's it's well timed in terms of i think really bringing key ideas and key key opportunities to reflect to the fore i think so yes alison thank you so much for joining us um it's been a pleasure to talk to you thank you very much andy great to talk take care bye-bye there you have it thank you very much to Alison for joining us on this week's episode of the podcast um, I really enjoyed talking to Alison I think um, there were lots of great sort of light bulb moments as we were chatting where we were talking about time how we use time the effectiveness of practice there were all sorts of things that really got me thinking and I'm sure for those of you listening I'm sure it will have got you thinking too. So yes, thank you so much for Alan, to Alison for giving us her time. Um, thank you, of course, to you people also for listening along as well. Um, that's about it for this week. So have a great week, everybody, and we will see you next week. <laughs>